Welcome, Jeff here. It's uh, September 29th, Friday, and it's the last day of our five-day experiment and doing a daily, daily evolver. And uh, we are going to take next week off to reevaluate and some other stuff I have to do. But I got to say, I'm really liking this and inclined to do some version of it going forward. And really appreciate you being here and really appreciate those of you who are listening live here in real time. You know, it just does feel like a real communication. So, so anyway, as you can see from the, uh, uh, the image that Corey put up here, this is the uh, contents page of the article uh, in the National Geographic. It's a National Geographic special edition that's all over America. And I think that it's all over America is an amazing thing. And it's called Inside the Animal Mind. And you can see the contents. They talk about intelligence, feelings, and relationships with animals and including uh, at the end, the, the possibility of even spiritual uh, realization of a sort uh, with animals. And they talk about the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the Jane Goodhall and how she talked about that the chimpanzees would approach a waterfall in a rhythmic sort of ritual way and then throw stones into the waterfall and then sit in contemplation, <laughs> or at least that's what it looked like. Why not? So you can drop the, the, the image. Um, but it's a matter, as I talked about, of bestowing um, an I-thou relationship with other creatures uh, besides uh, people. And that, that, that ever-increasing in, circle of what we bestow interiority to, the left-hand quadrants in aqua theory, uh, an I-thou instead of an I-it relationship is the uh, development of our moral, um, you know, our moral line of development. And, you know, we t I talked yesterday about how I'm, you know, having a more of an I-thou relationship with my dogs and, and, and so many people are, you know. There's a wonderful book called The New Work of Dogs. And it talks about how dogs have been used for all kinds of, of things, herding and guarding and hunting and fetching and all of that. But the new work of dogs is to be a companion. And that is a, a, a new development uh, in, on the planet. And we ought to notice that in terms of a real mass movement. So that's all good as far as it went. But there's another piece of this that is um, really worth talking about, especially in the context of what we talked about yesterday. And that is that there is still a huge category of animals that I hold in the I-it uh, category, as do most of us actually. And that is the farm animals, the literally hundreds of millions of animals that are raised for the purpose of providing meat in a, in a meat industry. And, um, you know, there's the suffering uh, that is a factor here. Uh, and there is also an environmental impact that is, um, you know, just uh, immense. And, um, and I wonder why in my, <laughs> I'm in my ridiculously overprivileged life that I can't give up this meat, that I can't stop participating in this meat industry where um, animals are treated as units of production. And um, 
I, um, I have to think, you know, not that this absolves me. I still think it's a moral failing, but it is an addiction in the sense that it's something I do, do even though I know it's harmful. And it's even harmful for me because I have sort of a not so great cholesterol, uh, you know, profile and all of that stuff. But uh, so anyway, this is a moral dilemma that I'm in. And I suspect many of you are in. And so let's see if we can sort it out integrally. And even in the act of doing so, move the ball in our own realization and our own skillfulness and capacity in dealing with this and understanding it. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I talk a lot about how um, I was just, I knew I grew up in a, a very traditional and in, in some ways even pre-traditional pre um, environments. Um, and I knew by the time I was six that I was going to be leaving home. Uh, and a lot of us did, you know, people who are listening to this, we all left our homes and came to some city and we became liberals, you know, the trajectory, uh, we move into the green mean. Uh, but there's a part of me that never left home, I realize. And this is where levels and lines really come in handy in terms of Ken's aqua model. And, you know, we talk about the big lines of development that people could be at one stage in, in, in their moral development and another stage in their cognitive development and another stage in their emotional, interpersonal lines of development. But Ken has always said something that really stuck with me and really helps me understand uh, this, you know, amazing manifestation of what it is to be human. And he said, there are as many lines of development as things that can be said about a human being. So I'm going to claim a gastronomy line here and note that mine is very solidly back in traditional. I never left home in that line of development. And I think back on it with such fondness of, this, you know, traditional loves this home and hearth thing. That's something that we get a little embarrassed by as we become liberals, but they love it. And, you know, grandma's at the kitchen and, uh, you know, and, and, and mom's holding the baby and dad's mowing the grass or cleaning the gun, you know, whatever it is. But for us, it was my mother had dinner on the table every night precisely at 510 because that's when my dad pulled in the driveway from his work at the power plant and we would have a family dinner. There were no phones. There was no distractions. It was, we were the four of us, my sister and me. And, and we had some version of meat and potatoes every night. Uh, and my mother was actually a more adventuresome cook than many of my friends uh, because she knew Italians uh, who had, you know, the, that, that stage of immigration that came in to work the steel mills and so forth. There was Italians and Poles and a lot of Eastern Europeans and they were friends. And so she learned how to make spaghetti and meatballs from the old Italian ladies and stuffed cabbage from the old Polish ladies. And so we had that and we had vegetable beef soup and my mother made homemade noodles for chicken noodle soup and, you know, pot roast and all of that stuff. And, um, and, and so now here I am, and I live in a very sophisticated culinary town here in, in Boulder. I could literally walk to good restaurants in over a dozen ethnic traditions. Um, and, but you know what I can't get? <laughs> I can't, I have no, no amount of money can get me sauerkraut and kielbasa in Boulder. 
And so I have to make it myself. And so I've made all these dishes and I realize I love to cook. And my culinary skills, as opposed to my gastronomy stage of development, my, my culinary level of development, is I'm pretty good. I, I, I know a lot of skills and stuff. And, you know, I'm a once a week cook. So I do things that my mother, who was a three times a day cook, didn't. You know, I sweat the vegetables and, I, you know, I brown things more and I'm whatever. But I still cook spaghetti and meatballs, vegetable beef soup, uh, homemade noodles the same way my mother did, uh, sauerkraut and kibasi, all of those things. And I love it. And the common denominator is meat. And so that is where, you know, I, I just noticed that that's where I'm lit up, that stage of my chakras and, you know, my, that, that strata of development is, is where I'm comfortable. It's where I'm home. And, uh, and, and I have to say that there's one aspect of this uh, that has become actually an obsession in my life. And that is this hot dog chili that they made only in the town I grew up in, uh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Uh, people will talk about it. My dad would can it for me and send it to me all wrapped up when I was, you know, moved to Boulder. And... Um, and, and Chuck and I went back to visit my hometown a couple of weeks ago. And the first place I took him to was the, the main restaurant called Coney Island, which is one of the only restaurants left downtown in this little town that really never came back from the, the, the steel industry collapse in the 70s. It literally has half the people it did when I was lived there. And, uh, you know, a lot of buildings are boarded up and the downtown has like a Goodwill and a real estate office and a tattoo parlor and that sort of thing. But this restaurant's still there. And so we went and had these hot dogs, oh my God. And we were talking to the restaurant or to the, to the waitress and she said fully half of their business is people who come in from out of town and on the way from the airport, before they even go where they're going, they stop and get the Coney Island hot dogs because you get them to go and they put them up their arm. They'll make six or 10 of them and they'll put them up their arm and make the, put the stuff on them. And then there's this, this gorgeous, lovely chili that I've, nobody's ever tasted anywhere else. So I've spent 20 years trying to perfect this recipe myself. And there are these sites online called orphan recipe sites where people say, Hey, you know, my grandmother back in Mississippi used to make blah, blah, blah. And does anybody know how that was? And so people are always, you know, suggesting things. And this hot dog chili, they've somehow managed to never franchise. Um, the, 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 the restaurant's been there for over 100 years. They started in, I think, 1915. And one of the first Greek, they were Greeks. They came over for one of the, you know, big immigration. And, and that was what they did. They had... Uh, the whole family of these restaurants and there's down to just a couple left and you know they've never uh, the, the the waitress did say that the guy next door which which was a shipping uh, uh, uh company a little shipping uh store he had a very bustling business freezing and sending this chili to people all over the world but at any rate uh about two years ago on one of these orphan recipe sites I saw a woman's recipe and she said, I got it. This is it. I, I, I know a friend of a friend, whatever. This is the recipe. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've cut it back to non-industrial proportions and try it. And it is the recipe. 
And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, very, very complex sauce, actually. It does have beef in it, but no tomatoes, no beans. And it's a melange of, um, of spices. In fact, there's four and a half teaspoons of cayenne pepper and four and a half teaspoons of hot Spanish uh, pepper, uh, chili. And, you know, you think, I made it the first couple of times thinking it can't possibly require that. But it did because the other stuff calms it. It's it's fantastic, and I can't imagine my life where I would never have that again. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It's in a category, a very high level. Uh, and, and then I think, wait a second. There's another thing that's up in that high level that you know people agree on all over the world, and that's foie gras. You know that exquisite goose liver where they. Uh, pump food into the goose in a plastic tube because a goose would never eat that much so that it creates an oversized liver that makes this delectable foie gras. And it's, you know, outlawed now in California. And uh, there's a lot of backlash against it because it seems like such a repulsive uh, process. And um, but then again, I don't like it, but I do like this hot dog chili. And um, so anyway, th this is where, you know, I'm, I'm sort of doing my sh uh, shadow work by this. This is what it is to, to have an integral practice and really to bring into um, uh, awareness the part that I, I don't want to think about. I don't want to think about the factories of meat. Um, I don't want to think about the I-it relationships. I don't want to think about these little pigs that are raised in these environments where they li literally never see the sunshine. And then you see the videos of the animals that are left out in the sunshine for the first time and how they romp and how they love their life. And, you know, I can't watch those videos. Um, and I, um, you know, I, it, it, one of the things that is so interesting about evolutionary theory is that we can look back and see slavery and think, oh, my God, you know, how did people ever tolerate that? And, and that's just one of the many horrors of history as we go back. And so the question is, what's the moral issue now that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to say, how in the world did you let that happen? And a, a great column was written on this by somebody that I did not expect, Charles Krauthammer, who is a Fox contributor and, and a, a conservative columnist. Uh, and he wrote that very column. I thought about that. And he said, you know, you know, what will we look back on? And what we'll look back on is these factory farms. Um, and, uh, and just the whole meat industry, you know, the modernization of meat. And that too, uh, you know, integral helps us see because we see that, you know, our relationship with animals has evolved. You know, in the early indigenous stages, we were one with the animals. They really were, you know, brother deer and, you know, sister bear and all of that sort of thing. And we killed them and ate them. But when we did, we ate their hearts and their livers and, and, and took on their spirits. And, and while we killed them, 
and, and, and caused their death, we were also willing to die, you know, because that was just, you know, the way of things. And we, you know, as we got civilized, we began to see that animals were useful in ways like beasts of burden and that we could actually domesticate them. And, you know, for a long time, basically all we did was keep them as healthy as we could uh, to, for them to do the thing we wanted them to do. Uh, and, you know, that's where we have the, I think of these uh, horrible sayings that people say all the time, like treating somebody like a dog or beating a dead horse. Or the other day on Morning Joe, one of these congressmen were talking about that they were beat harder than a rented mule. And, ugh, you know, so, so there's that whole stage. And I remember that. I grew up with that. You had a dog tied behind the garage because you wanted a watchdog. And that dog never got off the chain. And we had one. And we thought we were good because, the, uh, you know, my mother said, well, we have a longer chain and they had more time to run, more to run around. And we cared and treated them good. But what a life, you know, a, a social animal like a dog in that kind of uh, isolation. And it's interesting. We went back, as I said, to where I grew up, Western Pennsylvania, and went all up through the mountains and rural places. And we saw one dog house. We used to call them dog boxes where there was a tied up dog. And even that dog, is, is, it, it horrified me actually, but they had a little igloo and it was uh, you know, better than it was when I was a kid. Uh, so that's, you know, that whole sort of traditional red up through amber traditionalism, it's, they're useful. And then we get to modernity and in a way we treat them better. We don't beat them or, you know, anything like that, but they're, you know, it's just the unit of production. So if you can get a, a hen to lay eggs in a space that is the size of a piece of legal paper, then that's what you do. And that's what we have done. And that version of it for every animal into the hundreds of millions in this country and billions worldwide. And um, so then, so that's modernity. And then in post-modernity, we start getting the sensitivity to animals. And, and a lot of people have, in a way, more sensitivity to, than I do because I've been so horrified by it. I, I really can't let myself look or think about it much. I mean, it's sort of a willful denial. Uh, and so we do have, uh, you know, whole animal rights movement. And, um, and it's made a difference. Even modern companies like McDonald's no longer use uh, those egg crates. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't know what they use, and I'm sure it's not great, but it's got to be better than an egg crate, you know. So there's progress here. And, and then there's a sort of a movement that's sort of that sort of green back to earth movement that has sort of a circle of life attitude, uh, where as long as the animal's treated well, um, you know, that there's a certain uh, appropriateness to that. If you look at how God set up the world, presumably, um, or however it worked, that, um, you know, everybody eats everybody. And it doesn't seem to be as gnarly uh, to them as it is to at least my imagination. And that may just be, a, a, you know, a, a contraction around this particular form in life that is, you know, further spiritual development helps to relax, you know. So, you know, there's, um, 
there's a, um, a, 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 a chef, famous chef here in Boulder, Josea Rosenberg, who won the Top Chef Award uh, five years ago, so ago. And his whole thing is meat. And he's opening a, he has a big meat restaurant uh, out of town and he's opening one right in town where he uh, it supervises the raising of the animal, the butchering, butchering of the animal, and the animal never leaves. And um, that seems like that could be a way to go. You know, maybe I do that. Um, uh, so, uh, of course, the other thing is to just cut back. It's never appealed to my sort of all or nothing attitude. <laughs> Uh, but I remember even as a kid that uh, even though we were Catholics, my mother would go through a couple phases where we would have fish on Friday because that's the Catholics didn't have um, meat. They had meat. They couldn't eat meat on Friday. So they ate fish. And that was the way it was. And so we did, too. And, um, and I think about what that really was. It was just sort of a custom for us and for my even Catholic friends. But. What it, of course, deeply is, is a sacrifice where you think, okay, Jeff, maybe you actually never have bacon again. You know, maybe you never have that hot dog chili again. Maybe your next project is to make it be as delicious as it is now, but with using no meat. Um, I don't know. Uh, so this is, um, you know, where I'm at with it. I... Um, I think that the very act of talking about it, even right here and now, is part of integral practice. Uh, you know, I introspect it. And, you know, maybe you did too. And that is, uh, you know, every time we think uh, higher thoughts, uh, better thoughts, we're creating new grooves in the cosmos. I always love Ken would talk about that. And that's, I think, such a beautiful thing. And it helps me to continue to, you know, sort of bring more complexity to my own understanding. So, um, you know, I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, if there are any comments or questions or anything. Yeah, uh, uh, if there's any questions at all, feel free to raise your hand and we can bring you into the conversation where you can talk to Jeff directly. Um, Jeff, you know, as you were talking, um, first off, great, great presentation. It is such a massively complex issue uh you know it, it it touches everything i mean it touches your you know your family heritage your you know whatever culture you're coming from your ethnicity it touches your personal identity not to mention the fact that these drives you know the drive to eat the hunger drive is a pre-verbal drive itself which makes it that much more difficult to look at and to make that subject into object um, you know, and as I'm listening to you speak, I'm just, you know, just kind of trying to tune into my body and, and how it's responding. And what I notice is that my lower wisdom, which is still wisdom, has absolutely no issue whatsoever with eating meat. There's a lower wisdom that says this life thing is, is that cycle of life feeding on death. And that's how we got to where we are today. It is that dialectic that actually pushes things forward. Yeah, may I just interrupt to say that yeah. when you're doing that, th this is part of the sort of um, developing an I-thou space with animals because you're getting into your animal intelligence. That's right. It doesn't have a whole lot of layers above that. And of that's course, right. it has no problem with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because all these moral considerations comes after the hunger, right? Yeah. And 
And it's all taking place within the context of, you know, the modernization of the world over the last 500 years, which has basically had the effect of separating us or, or, or allowing us to perceive ourselves as having a separation from nature. Yeah. You know, a very mechanical separate. Now, what's interesting is that well, after sound, being subject to nature for all of previous history, what a relief. That's I mean, exactly I just, right. you know, two cheers for modernity. Absolutely. You know, the, I mean, if it wasn't for the space that that modernity created uh, between us and nature, I mean, that's where, you know, as you said earlier, uh, animals as companions, that's where that emerged was in that modern space. That's actually the same space where romantic love between men and women emerged for the first time really in history for, yeah. for the average person. Yeah. So, I mean, these are the blessings, but at the same time, that distancing effect. So the distancing effect from nature allows us to do two things. A allows us to give an animal a name. And as soon as we give an animal a name, we have personified it. You know, it sort of reminds me of the studies they did recently where, you know, they take these little robots and they're little ugly looking robots and they ask a person, okay, smash this robot with a hammer. And nine people out of 10 have absolutely no problem smashing the robot with a hammer. But then they they bring in the exact same looking robot. The difference being this one was programmed to make sad noises when it was getting hit by the hammer. And nine out of 10 people couldn't hit the thing, right? Yeah. So as soon as you name some, as soon as there's some, some quality of, of, you know, personhood or yes. of, of yes. agency, really, yes. of some quality of agency you can project onto, even if it's an inanimate, you know, circuit board, yeah. you, you, you respond to it differently. And, 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 you know, orange and green gives us much more space to bring those projections in, put them on, you know, um, onto these lower quote unquote life forms. Right on. Yeah. Um, You know, when I think of dogs and pigs being roughly the same in intelligence. Yeah. Now, how could the world could I eat my little pug, Gracie? That's right. Yeah. I was saying to you. Unless I, unless I was really hungry. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) Well, I was saying before the show. I mean, she would be, I mean, you you, you know, pugs. I mean, she would be a beautiful platter. I'll tell you with a... (laughs) <laughs> but what a horrible thought. Yeah, no, but I mean, I look, can't we, even allow myself have, to think it. we all have sort of our set of animals that we agree is unethical to, to eat. And they're usually, right. you know, we don't eat dolphins. The ones we have a relationship with. Well, yeah, exactly. The ones that have a name. That's right. It, yeah. Once we give it a name, that's exactly yeah. right. The other thing I want to say briefly, and then we'll, we'll bring in, uh, uh, someone's got a question, we'll bring him in. The other thing I want to say briefly was um, two things. Uh, I'm from Pittsfield, Mass., which is in Western Massachusetts, and we also have our sort of specialty hot dog. So I was, ah. I was kind of lighting up when you were talking about that. They're these, they're these little mini hot dogs. It's made yeah. by a company called Whirlies, and they just yes. snap to it in the sweet. Yes. And, yes. you know, I, I went about 20 years or so not eating hot dogs because I just, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I thought they were disgusting. Right. In my late 30s, I started getting this deep craving, this deep craving that I, I just, I couldn't scratch that itch until I finally went back home and had one of these hot dogs. I was like, yeah. oh, here it is. Yeah. That's what I've been missing. I and know. then the other, you know, the other thing you mentioned, foie gras. As I'm sure you can imagine, my family, with my family history, I have a little bit of difficulty with the idea of eating livers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's never, oh, yeah. that's never been a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 It's funny. I ate it as a kid. I can't bear it now. But. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. I see well, Heidi is um, raising yeah. Heidi, I'm going to you in. Oh, you're going to do that? Okay, yep. great. I'm going to bring her in. And unmute. Hello, Heidi. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Mark. <laughs> Hi, kitty cat. Oh, my goodness. Oh, what a beautiful family. We don't eat them. We don't eat them. I do not. Jeff, I think we talked about it before. I think you don't have to have bad conscience to eat meat because I think we are meant to eat meat. What is what you said really before? What is horrible is these machines, machineries, how to create meat, and to know that animals die for being thrown away in the supermarket because there is too much uh, offer in the supermarket and they, I, 30 or 40%, I think, of the meat they offer is thrown away. And I think this is really not. Isn't that something? Yeah. No, I, 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 you feel good. That, that's a comfortable spot for you. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I had sheep, I had lambs, and they had names. And uh -huh. the, the lambs, not so much, but the sheep. And I ate them as well because I had the green ideas before I had the animals myself. Yeah. I saw that it's a completely different relationship. And what it is important is that you honor the animal. Uh -huh. You know, I had Uzbekans here, and they killed a sheep, and then they were there praying, saying thank yeah. you. And, and I think this is a way where we can eat meat without any bad conscience. Because, yes. You know, we shouldn't at, uh, at all uh, cancel it from our, uh, uh, you know, desires even. Yeah. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> Do it in a, in a good way. And yes. Animals well, and uh, you know, even even out of an egocentric reason, treat them well because mistreated animals are not good for your body when you eat them. So right. uh, no, no, beautiful. Thank you, uh, and I love the story about naming them. And actually, I bought half a cow. Uh, a few years ago, and her name was Oreo because she was all black and white. And they sent me a picture of her. It was my brother-in-law. They had a farm. And um, and we had her picture up as, as we ate her. And and I, there was something that was actually, shall I say, extra delicious. But it just, it felt like, it felt good. It felt like it was good. Exactly. So, it is because you, you honor in that moment. You honor this yeah. and yeah. Own or have you have seen growing, and it's for me. It's nothing morally uh, absurd or something. It's, it's it's the right attitude you need. Yeah. But not yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, thank you. And, and great seeing you too. And I'm so glad to have you on. These are two dear old friends, uh, off in Italy, beautiful Italy. So you're, it's evening for you. It's Next time I'll talk. <laughs> that's, a, that's a deal, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye, kitties. <laughs> All right. So, I think the revolver goes global. Um, yeah, totally. Another point, too, Jeff, uh, which Tony Sauer uh, raised in the comments, which is, you know, our way out here. Because, you know, look, it, one, of, one, of the, one of the big problems that we have, and, and as Heidi said, it, you know, it's not the eating the meat that's, that's wrong. It's 
it's sort of the industrialized version of, of, of farming that we do now that is really problematic. At the same time, you know, we have a global population that we're trying to feed. And, and, and this gets really sticky, you know, and, and, then, and then, you know, sort of on the other hand of that is that the more of this sort of, you know, processed meat production that we do, we know that it's one of the largest drivers of climate change. Um, but, but the supply is not going to go down until the demand goes down and we're not going to change our, I mean, it's, it's such a complicated, complex knot. Yeah. It's really hard to, and, and again, and then you bring it back into the personal where we're talking about the hunger drive, which when you are feeling that drive, nothing on top, nothing that is stacked on top of that hunger drive matters. Yeah. And, you know, you've, we're right down at the base of Maslow's pyramid, aren't we? That's right. That's right. And it yeah. kind of wipes out everything above it. But, you know, as Tony mentions, um, there might be a way out here, which is we're now moving into, uh, the possibility of having uh, synthetic meat, synthetically yep. grown meat, yep. uh, lab meat. Yep. Now, you know, at first that sounds completely disgusting. I mean, it, uh, how, how good could this lab grown Petri dish meat possibly be? But then, you know, you couple that squeamishness again with the idea of eating an animal as intelligent as a pig. Yeah. Suddenly it's, it's, it's less repulsive, isn't it? A little bit Especially less if they use that beautiful pig cell. Yeah. And you just make more of them. That's right. You know, That's right. and really, you know, at the end of the day, it's always intrigued me um, that, that our culture, you know, if we were really taking that squeamishness seriously, and if we were really taking sort of this moral development seriously, and we were still, you know, sensitive to the fact that we need to get our nourishment, we would probably be eating bugs right now. And I can't think of anything less appealing than that idea, yeah. but it's the most plentiful food supply um, yeah. that, uh, you know, really nutritious proteins yes. um, that's available. Yeah. Well, we talked yesterday about the, the, the guy who wrote this National Geographic is part of an a, a initiative to create cat food out of mealworms. That's right. And, that, and I say that's fine for my cat, but keep it off of my plate. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You know? uh, yeah, this is where, you know, uh, the fact that we get to die uh, probably comes in handy because, you know, the, the mealworm flower, the, the eating bugs, uh, maybe if I were, you know, just starting out, I'd be able to grow into that. But that ship has sailed. I ain't going to be doing that. That's right. I don't think. Anyway. Well, what yeah. fun. Yeah. Great episode. So, yeah. uh, so as Jeff said in the beginning of the episode, Jeff's going to take next week off. And then uh, we'll be back with some announcements about when we're going we're gonna to come back. And what uh, the pattern will be. Yeah. In the meantime, stay tuned for uh, Keith Witt. We have a show with Keith Witt on, I believe it's Saturday, October 7th. Uh, I'm going to double check that right now because I don't want to steer people wrong. It's definitely a Saturday. It is definitely October 7th. Uh, and that's going to be his second episode of Live with Dr. Keith. Uh, I believe that's going to take place at 1230. We'll send out a more formal announcement uh, in, in the week to come. So stay tuned for that. Jeff, thank you for an amazing week of Daily Evolver. It's really fun. I'm, I'm loving this. Yeah, me too. This has been yeah. absolutely fantastic. Thank you for everything and for being you. Yeah. My pleasure. Bye, everybody. Bye, Corey. I'd Bye, see you guys. next time.